Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is Jean-Yves Bonton, who is a film and video game composer based out of Los Angeles. Jean-Yves has an incredible story in that he started off interested in a music career, entered the tech world as a programmer, and didn't officially start his film scoring career until he was around 36 years old. While most people believe they have to start at age zero to have an illustrious career in film and game music, Jean-Yves shows that you can start over at any point in your life and make an incredible career in music happen, even if you aren't the stereotypical prodigy that we see shoved in our faces every single day. In this episode, we talk all about Jean-Yves' incredible story on how he gave up his high-salary tech job to start all over again in music, how he made that all happen with a wife and kids, and how he made sure that he got the opportunities he did, even though he started his career in music later than so many people. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Jean-Yves Bonton. All right, let's get into it. I want to hear all about your kind of first brush with music growing up with jazz and gospel piano. Because uh, for some musicians, it's like they touch an instrument and everything just becomes clear. They see through the matrix and it's all just slides into place. Was it like that with you or was it just kind of a side thing? It was not. It was not. This whole music journey started because my mom uh, had a vision that we kids did not share. Her vision was that she would hear an organ in her house when I guess she came home and that she would have these children playing the organ. Little backstory, I believe my grandmother uh, played the organ. So my mom grew up listening to that sound and she wanted to recreate that in her own home. So instead of her going out and getting lessons, no. She forced (laughs) us kids to go out and get lessons. And I was the only one that I think I had to get organ lessons because I was the first one. So at four years old, she got an organ teacher and the organ, and that's what kind of started it. And it wasn't great at first, I remember. As a four or five-year-old kid, you're not going to pay attention all the time. Your mind meanders. It's what you do. But apparently my organ teacher did not feel that that was appropriate for our organ lessons. So I would get uh, a little corporal punishment every now and then from the organ teacher if I I wasn't paying attention. Oh, my God. I remember. I mean, look, this happened like several lifetimes ago, and I still remember getting, you know, a couple of quick claps from the organ teacher. So it wasn't something that I guess I grew up loving at first, but, you know, being an emo middle schooler, having the opportunity to sit down with the, you know, the piano, because at some point we graduated to the piano and, you know, play my little hurt middle school feelings, you know, into an instrument. That's what really sort of cemented and bonded. And it was really just therapy for me, honestly. And then eventually I figured out, you know, I could actually like play in front of people. So I ended up playing at school and I would accompany singers, nothing too complicated, you know, Broadway show tunes, uh, maybe a little Billy Joel, that kind of stuff. And, you know, started playing in bands and you know, I thought that was going to be like a cool kind of rock star kid and get all the girls, but that did not work either. 
but I still walked away with my love for piano and music. Nice. And when you were playing and performing, kind of getting used to it, it became more a part of your life. When did you start to realize that, oh, maybe music school is a thing? Because that's not a common thing that most musicians even think about. You know, that's true. And the funny thing is, in high school, I thought about going to Berkeley School of Music, right? In Boston, I thought about it. But for some reason, I thought about the idea, but I never really followed up on it. And I think there's a reason why. Look, I was a mediocre musician. I was, I was no child prodigy. I wasn't great, right? I was okay. Maybe on the bottom side of okay. But all of my teachers were, you know, amazing in my eyes. You know, they were great pianists, great jazz musicians. And they all had one thing in common. They lived at home with their mothers. And that was not the life that I wanted for myself. I love my mom, but I was like, you know what? I saw how hard it was to make ends meet as a musician. The options were you're either going on tour with somebody because I wasn't going to be the person singing all that stuff on stage. You either go on tour with someone or you end up teaching music, either in a school setting or privately. And, you know, you play in like little clubs or at bars or at restaurants and this and that. And I saw that none of these folks were able to really make a great living. And a little thing about my past too is I went to a very affluent middle school and high school. One of these schools that today probably costs like $50,000 a year to send your kids, right? But we were the poor little black kids, 45 minutes bust in from the south side of Long Island to I guess one of the first diversity programs the school had back in the day. And you know they made it affordable for us because they valued having me and my siblings there as part of the school, which was wonderful because it was a wonderful education and it was a very small school, individualized attention. We thrived there. But at the same time, I was introduced to wealth. I was introduced mm -hmm. to obscene wealth. And guess what? I liked it and I wanted it for myself, right? I mean, who wouldn't want to have their parents buy them a Porsche? for their first car as soon as they get their license or a permit, sorry, permit, you know, Lamborghinis <laughs> in, the, in the thought. You go to people's houses. I mean, literally they are living in mansions with not a pool, but pools, indoor and outdoor. So this was the kind of environment that I grew up in. And, you know, I would go back to our very middle-class home. I'm not trying to say that we were, you know, poor, we were lacking, not at all. You know, our parents, they were both professionals. And they provided a great life for us. But I saw the other side, and that was the matrix that I wanted to be a part of. So music was really not anywhere on my radar because I couldn't see myself attaining that status, attaining that wealth by doing music. So music was a thing that I came back to much later on in life. And, you know, I was going to be a lawyer. So I thought that was the way to do it. But I wanted to practice, at the very least, uh, civil rights law or maybe international civil rights law so that this way I could provide at least some sort of benefit to the world through helping people, not just helping myself. Interesting. It's like often when we're thinking of a music career, there's resistance I think from everybody, usually it's external, it's friends, family, just teachers, people around us saying like, oh, don't do music, you'll never make money. 
But in this case, it was internal, which I think is really interesting because typically as musicians, we think, no, I'm going to be the one who's going to be the billionaire. Like, it's going to be me. It's a different mindset with you. I had no delusions. And it's also because I was also very ignorant about what the possibilities were for music. I saw two, gigging musician or teacher. And that was it. Obviously, you know, front man or front woman, you know, singing and da da da. That wasn't me, right? Because I had no mm-hmm. voice. My siblings could sing, but I couldn't sing. So, from that perspective, those are the three options. And one, I didn't have a talent for. And two, again, they wouldn't provide for me the life that I wanted for myself. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, it just wasn't even really a, a realistic option. And I think that's one of the problems that we have nowadays with anyone that wants to get into music is that they don't really understand what the possibilities are. It's not just those three jobs. There are many, many, many jobs, right, that come around music. I mean, it's a billions of dollars are generated through music. So it can't just be those three jobs. But of course, unless there is someone who's going to guide you through that process and sort of show you what the possibilities are, it's unknown to you. And it was definitely unknown to me until much, much later in my life. And that's exactly what I wanted to ask you next was at some point, something happened where you said, all right, let's do the trifecta of Yale, USC and Berkeley. <laughs> you did the, the triple tour of all the music schools that everyone hopes to go to. I'm a Berkeley guy. You did all of them. So where did that happen? I did it in various permutations. So, you know, I ended up going to Yale undergrad. And at first I was going to be a lawyer with my plan. So I ended up starting off as an English slash history major. I was bored as hell doing those two (laughs) subjects. Then I did like political science for a little while. Didn't really like that either. Tried to do international studies with emphasis on like African countries. Okay, that was a more interesting. And I ended up studying Swahili as part of it. You know, don't ask me to say anything. I think I remember Una Tokawapi, like, where do you want to go or whatever? You know, Hujambo means hello. That's probably all I remember at this point. <laughs> but I figured, heck, I'm going to go to law school at some point. I think it was like halfway through like my first year there. So I'm going to go to law school. So undergrad doesn't really matter. What really matters is getting great grades. So I should do something that I'm passionate about. And I'm passionate about music. I was still passionate about music. So I said, let me just study music. I'm here. I can study whatever I want. As long as I do well in LSAT, you get great grades. It won't be a problem. You can do whatever I want. So I switched to music. And I have a great time studying music. And, you know, remember, it's undergrad. It's not, it's not the music school. I'm not going to try and, like, claim that. It wasn't like the graduate program music school that we know so many people have gone to. I was in more the Christoph Beck slash Thomas Newman undergrad Yale program. Okay? Mm-hmm. Not, too, no, not slouches either, but... I'm trying to put myself in that category, not the Marco Beltrami, Anthony Parnther grad school. Not that I'm slumming it with Chris and like Thomas. (laughs) So anyway, (laughs) you know, I did my undergrad. I have a great time and I enjoy myself. I do an emphasis in music production. So I started a recording studio in one of the undergraduate colleges in the basement. And I ran that for several years. I created my own independent study in music business and, you know, recording because of course they had no classes like that at all. So I found a way to get an internship at Sony Music down in Manhattan and would go down there several times a week and wrote papers about it. So, you know, I was able to get college credit for that. And then I was also, again, focused on like the recording industry 
and you know how you actually do the technical side of recording and i met with a couple of professors that were sort of dabbling in that and i sort of created a program for myself and then a couple that with the recording studio and i produced several local acts i also created a singing group i didn't sing but i wrote music and accompanied them uh the singing group which actually lasted for a few years after i were gone which was actually crazy so you know i did all of that stuff and i had a great time but i was still gonna go to law school until i took my lsat and then I realized I'm not going to law school. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do as great as I thought I was going to do. So I was like, okay, this is not for me, this law school thing. So I ended up graduating and I ended up getting a job in computer sciences. This is, remember, this is now I'm about to date myself. This is back in like 96. I graduated in 96. And they were just looking for warm bodies to put in these seats to do these dot-com sites. I was a warm body. I had dabbled <laughs> in some HTML. This was back in the day where you actually had to get your email through like Pine Reader, you know, on a Unix platform, right? This is like back in the day. So at least I knew how to like what a command line interface looked like and like how to sort of do commands that way, a little bit of Unix. So I was like, they grabbed me up, man. And that started a 15 year journey of doing software development. I taught myself uh, SQL databases on the job and relational database management, Visual Basic for applications, and eventually Java. And I was building web applications. And many of the applications that I built are still out there today doing things. Obviously not the same version I wrote, but at least the platforms and the ideas that were there, they're still out there doing stuff. You know, I was actually the uh, first VP of development for Fresh Direct, an online food service that still operates in New York City. So, you know, this was back in like the wild, wild west where they just needed people. And I was able to quickly pick up these languages and these skills and provide a service. And I could also communicate with people. So that put me in this wonderful position where I could meet with the business folks about what they wanted to do. And then I could translate that to the tech people on how to get it done. So I ended up very quickly becoming a project manager and then eventually a product manager. And that eventually brought me to Silicon Valley. And I worked for several startups in Silicon Valley. And at the end of my last startup, when it was bought by a larger company, I had to stay there for about a year to see my stock options best. I was thinking about, do I want to do this again? Do I want to stay here? Do I want to go someplace else? Do I want to do a different career? And this is where, you know, music just started to make a bit of a resurgence in my life. And I remember this. I remember I was sitting, you know, in my room one night and I know people might think I'm crazy saying this, but this is what really happened. I believe God spoke to me. And in my mind, these words form. If you believe in me and trust that I have your best interest in mind, why don't you trust me with the vision of your life? Because at that point, my vision was all about, again, trying to make that money that hadn't left me. And I wanted to basically be a CTO, chief technology officer in a Silicon Valley company and ride that all the way to millions of dollars and blah, 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 blah. And that's all I saw. And, you know, anybody who got in my way, be damned. Even my family, you know, by that point, I had a wife and two kids. And I say at that point in my life, I was not the best husband and I was not the best father because I was just focused on working and trying to achieve this dream. And I thought that my number one contribution to my family was providing. 
and providing a life for them and that everything else was secondary. So when this thing hit me, I was really scared because everything heretofore had been about this particular life I was pursuing. And I was so far along, you know, in this life. I was 15 years doing software. I was, you know, running a business for the, a line of business for this, this technology company. I could have gone to almost any other startup that I wanted to. I had contacts, networks, I was making money, big old house on top of the hill. So, I mean, like I was realizing my dream, the dream that was placed in my head going to this school as a middle schooler and high schooler, I was finally realizing it. And God asked me to give all that stuff up. I was like, God, why, why, why? I thought I was happy, but no, I was like, give it up. So I said, fine. It wasn't at that moment. It took several days, maybe in a few weeks, but I couldn't shake this thought. And I finally said, fine, I will give up this vision and I will allow you to lead me where I need to be. And when I let go of that vision, that's where music started to make its way back into my life. Just started by me going to play the piano again. And I had shipped the same piano that I had had for my parents' house to California with me and never, you know, still had it. So I, there it was. I hadn't been touched in like years. I just sat down, so I started playing. And of course, all those middle school feelings started coming back, right? It's like, oh, well, this was so nice. <laughs> <laughs> then I started playing with this thing, Logic, right? I had a laptop playing with Logic. And I was like, oh, okay. This is kind of like programming. Like put notes in and da 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 da. Because, you know, when I was in college, we were still pencil paper. And like Sibelius or Finale was like the big thing, right? All of a sudden you can actually put notes in a computer, but you still <laughs> couldn't really hear, you know, what you were writing unless people actually started playing it. That's one of the things that, you know, the undergrad thing didn't really do. You didn't really hear people playing your compositions. Your teacher would like look at it like, oh, that's a parallel fifths. And yeah, <laughs> there, blah, blah, blah. It's not going to sound good. And that's it, right? And then you get your marks back and you go, you go imagine. And that was it. No one ever heard it. So I never really had that magic. All of a sudden, there's logic. And I can like put stuff in and I can hear it back, right? And it was amazing. And I was playing around. And I had a friend and I sent one of my logic uh, things to her. And she said, you know what? This sounds like film music. And I was like, wait a minute. There's music in film? You mean that I've been watching movies and TV shows all this time and there's music in it? It had never occurred to me that this was a job and that this was something that people did and got paid to do it. So I started researching. So oh, wait a this is like a thing. So I started researching. I was like, you know what? I could do that thing. <laughs> of course, I don't know. This is hubris. I can do that, right? Why, why, of course I can. So I started this journey of going to Berkeley School of Music online. I didn't go to the one in Boston. I didn't go to you know the one in person. I did the online program, and I just started doing that and started playing around with film music courses, uh, orchestration, and writing for film, writing for games, that kind of stuff. So I started doing that. I got one of their certificates uh, with that, and um, I had a great time, and I enjoyed it. And look, I knew nothing. But for whatever reason, my teachers were like, oh, okay, you know. They were very encouraging. Now, maybe it's because they wanted me to keep taking classes and paying money. I don't know. <laughs> but they were very encouraging. So I was like, okay, I can do this. Then I went up to San Francisco and I went to a school music production place called Pyramid. I just found it online and I went and just started hanging out there. 
I was like, well, this is where music happens. We'll go start hanging out there. And I ended up meeting a couple people while hanging out there. And I said, okay, I became an intern. So here I was, you know, still at my job. I guess I was a director or executive director or whatever, whatever. And then in the evenings, I would go to San Francisco and, you know, be the intern that was setting up for events, you know, being the guy at the door with the checklist, cleaning up, taking out the garbage or whatever. I had to start over. So, you know, no chip on my shoulder, no nothing. Start over. I started meeting more people. And at one event, I met this guy named Clint Bajakian. When I tell the story, I really get chills because I just see all the tiny things, right, that just happened that then just encourage or set up the next tiny thing that happened. So I met this guy named Clint Bajakian, and we were just talking about video games because I was at that point Uncharted to come out, the first Uncharted. And, you know, I loved that game. I loved the score for it. I was like, oh, I, I finally knew that people got paid to do music for games now. So I was paying attention and I loved it. I was like, oh, this is great. And I ended up meeting that composer and I met Clint and we started talking about classic video games and this and that. And then I found out that he was actually the head of uh, music production for Sony games. And I was like, okay, hey, this is what I want to do. He said, all right, kid, come on down to the offices in a couple of weeks and we'll have lunch and we'll talk about it. So we went down there, we had lunch, talked about everything. And he said, okay, if you really want to do this, which you're crazy to want to do this, you have to basically go to USC. Because one, all the composers that we've hired for our games have basically gone to the USC film store. Second, no one is going to hire you to do any music for them being a Silicon Valley executive. You need to basically go to USC because that's going to erase your past. And it's going to be tabula rasa. I said, great. I'm going to go to USC. Again, the hubris. I'm looking at the hubris of myself saying, I'm going to do all these things. <laughs> of course, I found out it was like the number one film scoring program in the world. And they only let in like 10% of the applicants. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. Okay, this is going to be a little more difficult. But I had picked up one skill in business, which was... Never be a name on a piece of paper. People have to know who you are and hopefully have a good impression of who you are so that when they do see your name on the paper, it conjures good feelings. So I went down to USC and I met with the director, Brian King, who was the director at the time. And I went and attended some classes. And the great thing was, because I had just finished, you know, the Berkeley courses or whatever, I wasn't completely lost when I was in the program. We were looking at classes, and it was Jack Small. I went to his, uh, his composition class, Jack Small, and they were talking about, you know, extended harmonies and how to do planing and blah, 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 blah. I was like, okay, this is all great. <laughs> I know what he's talking about here. So I, don't, I didn't feel super intimidated. Again, the hubris. So <laughs> I went to my post-sort of visit meeting with Brian King, and Brian was like, okay, so give me your story again, which I did to say, are you sure you want to do this? Because obviously he knew a few things that I didn't quite know. Mm. But he's like, are you sure you want to do this? Like, yeah, I want to do this. So I'll tell you what, we just had Teddy Shapiro come in and give a workshop with our students. And he gave them a clip to do from the Devil Wears Prada. I'm going to give you the same clip. And I'd love for you to go home, work on it, right? And send me back what you did. I said, okay. He's a cake. I take the clip home. I look at it. It's basically the scene where Meryl Streep's character is coming in to the office and everybody's going crazy trying to prepare for her arrival. I was like, oh my goodness, how am I going to do this? Right. 
But you know, I had my newfound Berkeley skills. I figured out how to load it up in Logic Video and Logic or whatever. I had just done my orchestration classes, so I kind of knew, you know, what things were supposed to be where, blah blah blah. And yeah, I spent like three days working on like this minute and a half clip or whatever because it wasn't a very long clip, but I did it. And in the end, looking back at it, it wasn't horrible. I probably would have been fired <laughs> from the film. <laughs> But, you know, it wasn't horrible, but definitely not up to snuff. But I said it to Brian. And Brian said, you know what? You know how many people in your position come and say they want to do this thing? And I give them an assignment like this, and I never hear from them again. Mm -hmm. You actually did the assignment. And he said, it's not great, but it's not bad. <laughs> right? <laughs> Let's keep talking. I said, fine. So the other thing I did was... I knew I didn't have a great portfolio of things to submit to the school. So I coerced the late Jack Smalley to take me on as a private student. And I would fly down from Silicon Valley to LA twice a month to study with him privately. And I did that for like six months at the end nice. of which I had a portfolio of music, you know, that was done to picture that was a little better than what I did with the Devil Wears product. Right. Actually, it was much better. But still. <laughs> but still, you know, I worked hard to do that. And all along the while, I kept in touch with Brian and told him what I was doing. And it was a combination of, you know, him seeing that I was passionate about this thing. I might have had at least a spark of a voice that was interesting, but also just that I was determined and all the things that I had done to get to this point. So when my application finally get in, I highly doubt I was like the best applicant, right? But he knew who I was and knew what I wanted to do and saw the effort that I had put into making this thing happen. And that spoke volumes. Mm -hmm. So he let me in, or the, the committee let me in. Obviously, not just him, but it was a committee of people and they let me in. And I was surprised, right? And that launched this entire, you know, new life. So that's how all those schools ended up being a part of who I am. And each of them sort of helping me get to that next step or that next school, but all of them not really being part of, you know, some master plan that I thought about from the very beginning. I'm so envious of people who are like, yeah, out of the womb, I knew I wanted to be a composer. <laughs> right? Right? I came out screaming and I was perfect pitch. It was a genius. <laughs> <laughs> I had none of that. Right? Mm -hmm. I had none of that. And each of these things, they were kind of haphazard, but they just were sort of like the next logical step in, in this journey that was kind of unfolding as it went. And that was part of the, you know, adventure where I think, you know, if God had told me that night, like, you're going to be a film composer, I probably would have ran away. <laughs> what is that? Right. I'm probably like, no, uh, this is too much. I'm going back to be soft. But it was just like these little sort of steps that took a long way that each one wasn't quite as scary because I had been prepared by the previous step, you know, that eventually led me to this thing of being here talking to you today. I think you perfectly summarize so much of the musician's journey that no one hears about. You put in 
time that no one else does. You did the assignment because, yeah, nobody does the assignment. No one does that work when they're assigned, especially when it's like self-imposed in a way because you showed up to his office hours. He gave you the assignment. Ninety nine percent of people will walk away. You flew down for the uh, lessons. You have the humility to say, oh, I am in a way starting over. I'm having this super high salary as a tech person. Let me start sweeping floors at Pyramind. There is a huge humility there. And even if someone who's listening to this path isn't the exact same as yours, they can take equivalence from all of it because all of it is so important. You weren't a name on a piece of paper. You showed up as much as you humanly could. You met people like Clint and you were just at the right place at the right time, but you only got to the right place at the right time because you showed up. Yes. Whereas most people would just say, ah, it's never going to work out. Let me just stay at home or I'll just stay on this path or whatever it may be. And there's something that, is so interesting to me. I see 21-year-olds emailing me saying, I'm just too old to do music, I guess. I see that all the time. I have an email from an 18-year-old saying, I think it's too late for me to start music. An 18-year-old. So from your perspective, please counter that. <laughs> Put it this way. There are people who are naturally talented and have totally. a certain proclivity right, to certain things. Screw those people. <laughs> <laughs> forget them because if you put the time in i mean we're blessed with these amazing minds that are programmable mm-hmm. you think about it i mean the best piece of software hardware apple got nothing on our minds <laughs> because when we spend time with things we're reprogramming our mind and i think that's what's maybe lost on people is not understanding how their mind works. And, you know, I still take lessons. I was taking lessons a few months ago, ear training lessons. So that's one of the things like, for example, I never really sort of spent time with ear training. And I was like, oh, it's too late for me to go back and learn that. No, it's not too late. It might take me longer because my brain is maybe a little less open to change since it's mm. old, but <laughs> it's still possible, right? And, yeah. you know, one of the things that we talked about a lot during our internet is like how the mind actually works and how all we're doing by repeating these things is building new pathways and then strengthening them so that this way they become wider and they become faster. And that is a physical process. You cannot short circuit that. And what happens is people get discouraged because they're not naturally able to sort of achieve something or achieve what they want to do in their mind, so they get discouraged. Yes, there are some people who do that, but most people don't. And the people that actually you probably you know idolize, they probably don't have that either. They just spent time working on it. And yes, it's going to suck. And yes, you are going to suck at first, but you just have to keep going back back and back and eventually your mind will be reprogrammed to do stuff the other thing you have to do too this is one of the things another teacher of mine, i had a lot of teachers i've had a lot of teachers which is also another sort of i think big lesson is that you're not going to learn everything from one person and you need to have a lot of people who can speak into your life and i am so blessed that i have so many people that speak into my life and there was another you know gentleman bruce broughton Amazing composer, right? Storied career. And, you know, he said to me, you can't give someone something to say. You can help them say it, but you can't give them that thing that they want to say. And he said, you know, I hear 
and this was back in USC when we met, you have something to say. You just don't know how to say it yet, <laughs> right? Mm. And I can help you do that. So the reason why I had something to say was because I had life. And we don't have anything interesting to say unless we have life. If you think about it, like all of the uh, you know, amazing sort of artists that we love or whatever, why is it that even though they're like child prodigies, they start early, they usually had some sort of messed up childhood or something was like not great in their childhood. So they had a life experience, right, that influenced them and they died early. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Or you have the sense where people, you know, start to really sort of get into their, their career in their 30s and 40s because that's when they start to have life, right? So you need to have some life experiences. You need to get your heart broken. You know, you need to struggle. You need to have some triumphs. You need to go through self-loathing. You need to go through all of these things so that this way that formulates giving you something to say. And again, having done all of that and having had a previous career and all of these things, I guess I had something to say and I just needed help figuring out how to say it. And so many people poured into my life and helped me with that. And I'm super honored that they heard something, you know, in me. And that's what I think is the other part of that thing about people getting discouraged is that, yes, there's a point in your life where you're building your craft and building your chops and your brain. But you also have to experience life because that's going to give you something to say. So don't give up so early because at 18 year old, what do you got to say? You got nothing to say at 18 mm -hmm. years old. You ain't done nothing yet for most people. I mean, yes, there are some 18 years old who live like a really hard life and I feel for them, but they probably have something to say. So part of it is just this maturing process that as you get older, you're going to have more experience and things to say, but it's also that process of going to the gym, you know, practicing your scales, practicing mm -hmm. this, practicing that, going through your exercises. So this way you kind of building your ear, all these things, those all take time and you can't short circuit that process. You hit something really well because you just mentioned like, oh, I'm taking ear training lessons. There's a common belief of, oh, once you've made it, you've made it and you're done. Like that's what oh, everyone what? thinks about musicians. That's not even remotely true, right? Like we're always studying, you're always trying. And there's always a feeling of, I have no idea what I'm doing, even if the score on the other end sounds like you absolutely knew what you were doing. But there's right. a gap that happens where even if you're good, there's even a gap in that career of like, okay, I've gotten the skills. Where does the career happen? And you even said, like, you can't expect to go into a career in music and expect to feed yourself. So I'm curious, where did you kind of focus after graduating, after realizing, okay, film scoring, game scoring, this sort of stuff is the thing. What did you focus on to make sure that you could feed yourself instead of the common struggle? Well, you know, the way that you think you're going to feed yourself coming out of USC is that you're going to be in a system. Yeah. Because every, you know, all of like the folks that end up going through that path, they all end up sort of assisting somebody. Right. And that's a way that you get a chance to learn. You get a chance to be exposed to bigger projects, all being sheltered, you know, by this composer that's hiring you. Mm -hmm. And you have no real responsibilities except to make sure that this person can write music. Right. Right. Which, you know, people are like, oh my goodness, that's a lot. But it's a lot, but still, that's a small responsibility compared to what that person has to do to actually mm -hmm. feed you, right? <laughs> I mean, you're kind of like outsourcing this job of feeding me to somebody else. 
That's what you're doing. You see, I had some life, so I have a chance to actually see that. I love it. Right? But unfortunately, that wasn't my path, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to hire me. I thought I was very employable. But, you know, nobody wanted to hire me. I went on interviews and all this stuff. But yeah, nobody wanted to hire me. And I think part of it was, you know, I was older. When I graduated USC, I was 36 or 37. And I already had, you know, a wife and two kids that were, you know, around 10 years old, thereabouts. So I wasn't as flexible as what some people needed. But, you know, some of the folks that are looking for, like, you know, assistance, they're starting out their career and they're finally get their first assistant. And what does that mean is, oh, I have one rig. So that means that, you know, I'm going to work all day. Then I need you to show up at like five, six o'clock at night, right? Or eight o'clock at night and print stems for me, deliver all this stuff, blah, 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 be done at like three or four o'clock in the morning and then come back and do it again. I'm like, wait, I got to get my kids to school. You know, <laughs> I, I, I like having dinner with my family, right? All this yeah. kind of stuff. And I was like, no, I'm not going to sacrifice. I can't do that. So, you know, I self-selected myself because I had family, you know, out of many of those opportunities. And then the rest, you know, whatever. We can conjecture all day long, but I didn't get any one of those jobs. And I'm not going to take it personally, okay? Mm. So... I was feeling a little insecure about, you know, doing stuff because, of course, when you graduate from USC, Warner Brothers is not waiting for you saying, hey, oh, we're going to give you a job. Here's a movie to score, right? It doesn't happen, right? Mm-hmm. I wish it did, but it doesn't. So you got to kind of figure it out. And I remember I was trying to find an assistant job or this or that. And I was doing sort of like a couple of like freelance things, setting up some technology. Remember that guy, Teddy Shapiro, who I said, did Devil Wars Prada thing. He and Ed Shermer did a workshop for my year. And, you know, I got a chance to meet him at that point. Super nice guy. Meet him both. And soon after that, one of my classmates, when we got graduated, was hired by Teddy to be his assistant. See, he got the job. I didn't get the job. <laughs> and Nathan Matthew David, amazing composer, one of my best friends in L.A., really talented dude. He just finished scoring The Young Rock. He's doing that series right now and a whole bunch of other stuff. His career is blowing up. I'm so happy for him. But... You know what he did when he got there, he knew that I had a tech background and Teddy was looking to upgrade his rigs. He said, oh, I got the guy for you. So he brought me in and truth be told, I don't know if I ever told Teddy this, I didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I had some computer knowledge, you know, I had some software, I had knowledge and I had music stuff, but I had really no application of it. But apparently, you know, I impressed my classmates who really didn't know anything either about my tech savviness. And, you know, Nathan brought me into Teddy. He's like, hey, this guy will rebuild your rig. So I said yes to the job. And I, you know, went and spent a bunch of his money right, to rebuild <laughs> some stuff. And it was rough at first. I remember the first time I put it together for him and like set it up and all this stuff. Uh, it was when Bien Ensemble Pro was like relatively oh, yeah. new. And I was set up, you know, two PCs. BE Pro host for him and Mac set it all up, got it all working, right? And it performed horribly, right? <laughs> it performed horribly. I thought it was good. He's like, Teddy's like, this is horrible. And he was so angry. And I didn't get the whole sort of coupled versus decoupled thing. So he was programming oh, yeah. like an atmosphere and then his patches were lost and all this stuff. Oh my goodness, it was horrible. So I learned a lot, but you know, I stayed there. And I took the brunt of him being angry and annoyed with me, rightly so, as he should. He's paying me good money to do all this stuff, but I figured it out and we fixed it. And then we worked on the workflow and I learned a lot of valuable lessons. And you know what that man did? He referred me to another client. Mm -hmm. And that next client was Alexander Desplat. He referred me to him. 
so this was going on in the background while I was, I was doing like these freelance tech jobs while I was looking for an assistant position. And again, I guess this is the theme of our thing. This was just so slowly unveiled to me, right? It's not, I didn't have no master plan. It mm-hmm. just started to be unveiled. And after those two experiences of, you know, doing some stuff for Mr. Desplat and doing some stuff for, you know, Mr. Shapiro, I was looking for the job and I talked to this guy, Peter Rotter, who's a contractor in town. And he was also another friend. Again, so many friends. And he said to me, you know, you got this tech side of things and you have two successful and high profile clients now. Why don't you make that official? I said, huh. So I grabbed another tech savvy classmate of mine, Harrison Lee, and we started a company called Composer Tech. And we hung a shingle. ComposerTech.com was available, right? No one had Composer Tech. So we grabbed that, set up a website, and people started calling, right? It was a referral business, and with those two high-profile clients and people sort of referring us um, around, by the time six years had passed and we look back, we had over 150 clients around the world, and some of them being the top names in film score, you know, were our clients. And obviously, we learned a ton setting up all these sort of rigs for people. And our whole job was, we're going to come in, consult with you. And these are the things that I picked up from my tech background, in that it had to be a complete solution. We're going to come in, we're going to consult, we're going to talk about what you like, what you don't like. We're going to figure out your workflow. Then I'm going to go back and I'm just going to present to you a whole solution that's going to, you know, work. You don't have to worry about anything. And then I will make sure I purchase everything. You just write me a fat check. Nice. And I will purchase everything. I will get it all developed. I will train your assistants. So this way you can just sit down and start working. Nice. And we had this pretty refined by the time, you know, we were toward the end of this thing. And it just grew like gangbusters. And that's what ended up keeping the lights on for me as I was slowly starting to build, you know, my film career. And my film career was not based on a hand-me-down from another composer. Because, you know, maybe I had some sort of thoughts that doing this tech work for folks on a freelance basis, that maybe one of these high-profile people would actually refer me for a gig. That never happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know what? And I was totally wrong to even like think that that should happen because I was there to do a job. They paid me well to do that job. And then I'm gone. Mm-hmm. And that was it. There was no relationship here. They didn't listen to my music. That was none of that part of that. And I didn't bring any of those expectations to it because, you know, I'm here to do a job. You're here to pay me. That's our transaction. If you do want to listen to some music, well, then maybe you'll ask for it and then I'll be happy to oblige. But I'm not going to come to this relationship with that baggage or with that hope. And that also, I think, allowed people to refer us to, you know, other people because we were mature, safe, professional. So what I had to do was just continue to work with my friends, which was wonderful. Now, I met a whole bunch of filmmakers while I was at USC. And I think that year that I was there at USC and the year after, I think I did close to 60 USC projects. I also knew, again, coming in as an older person, that it was about relationships and networks. Yes. And that you have to get your working relationship out there because that's where your next job is going to come from. Mm-hmm. So I worked with everybody I possibly could, and I was out there. And you get referred, you get referred, you get referred, you get referred. And from that, there were a few that continued to work after USC. Because, look, it's hard mm-hmm. for those filmmakers as well. 
you know yeah. they all go there they got big dreams but you know it's a tough business mm -hmm. and you think we have it bad these folks even have it harder but i stay connected with a few of them and as the years went on there were a few that kept on working and kept on working and i was their person whether there was a fee attached to it or not didn't matter mm -hmm. i was their mm -hmm. person and i'm going to work with you not only because they're my friends but it's also like look I ain't gonna let anybody else come up in here and mess with my stuff, okay? Because this is our thing and I love it and you love it. So I'm not gonna let anybody else come up in here. So if you got no money, no big deal, we'll make it work. Because I had the money covered with Composer Tech. I also taught at USC because I was a tech guy. The tech teacher, Freddie Weedman, had left. So they needed someone to come and like pull in. So I took that job and I taught technology there. I ended up teaching uh, music production at Occidental. So I, you know, I cobbled together a career between the tech stuff and uh, teaching. And then again, so this way I didn't have to rely on getting paid through music. Eventually, meaning like in the last two years, I was finally starting to make enough money from my music projects that I was able to start to close things. I closed Composer Tech. I quit Occidental. So this way I can now focus. But it took from 2012 when I graduated to 2021, nine years, and I just took another teaching job this semester at USC. I don't know why, but nice. I did. <laughs> That's cool. But I, I quit. I quit. <laughs> so really, starting in January 2022 is the first time I will be 100% on music. Ten years. That's so important what you said. Like everything, what you distilled it perfectly again because it's not right after graduating and you were doing other things. You, yes, it was related to music, but it wasn't the thing. And there's a misconception where like, oh, if I'm around the film composers, maybe they'll see my value and hire me. Like, no, you're there to do a job. That's not what they're seeing you as. And it's not their responsibility to take you and be like, ah, come under my wing. You are just fixing my computer. Now you're mine. It's funny. You and I have a similar thing. When I graduated in 2012 of Berkeley and moved to Seattle, I started doing Vienna Ensemble Pro setups for people. That was like a thing I started doing for no established way. composers because it's such a pain in the ass. I should have hired you, man. Oh, God, no, I hated it because it's such a pain in the ass. But it's so funny it because you hit on something so important that a lot of people will come to these composers saying, oh, let me assist you. I'll write some music. Like they have that covered. Like do something they don't want to do or can't do or don't have the time to do. You nailed that perfectly. Yeah, they don't need you to write music for them. That's not what they need. And if they do, they probably ain't coming to you. Yes, they already know somebody. They know somebody or there's a certain style that they need. And they're going to go to that person that does that style. They ain't coming to you fresh out of, you know, grad school or whatever right. it is, right? Because you've got no style. So it's kind of like, <laughs> <laughs> you ain't got nothing. What you got is the ability to potentially, you know, have your head around technology and understand how the yes. stuff works and be able to pick that up very quickly. And especially, you know, with a certain generation, you know, film composers, the technology thing, you know, they start pencil and paper. Right. So, you know, they've had to come leaps and bounds technology-wise to get to, you know, working today. And there are still things that they don't want to be bothered with. It's not that they can't do it. They won't be bothered with it. At a certain point, they just want to write the damn music. So, right. yes, you're the guy or gal who knows the technology who can come in and sort of like figure stuff out and get on the forums and do the whatever, whatever is nowadays to do that. Yeah, that is your job. And that is it. And at some point, if you work for someone doing, you know, that full time, you're looking, you know, what, say, you know what, you've been here for like two years and my brig's been doing great. You know, mm -hmm. I have like a 10 second cue 
little bumper. Why don't you work on that today? They throw you a little bone. Right. And you know, that's what you take a little 10 second cue and you're going to spend all day on that 10 second cue. <laughs> Cause you're going to write it five ways from Sunday just because you know, you're trying to, <laughs> this is like your shot. It's my shot. <laughs> so, you know, you're going to like spend some time on that thing and then you're going to play for the guys like, Oh, not bad. Here's another one. Right. Yes. And yes. that's how it works. Yes. And slowly but surely, right, you start to sort of win. It doesn't happen day one. The, I think the other thing to take away from this conversation is this is a lifetime. And you need to give yourself the time not only to hone your craft, but the time to let the universe, let the world give you opportunities. And the only thing you can do is whatever task is in front of you right now, just murder it, murder that task. And that's it. So that this way people will get a sense, oh, this person murders tasks. Let me give him some more stuff. Right. And that's it. Yeah. It's crucial. Like what I I'm in the phase of like hiring people right now. And is that's all I look for. I don't care how skilled they are. Like I, it's as long as they're good enough beyond a certain point. I just say, okay, are you putting in effort and time? Great. You're killing it. Fantastic. It's so important. And you did that too in your career. I did. I did. And it's also attention to detail. Look, if things were perfect, right? I mean, sometimes I would deliver like a system or a template or this or that, and there were bugs in it. But, you know, I knew that there were going to be bugs. And I could say, okay, part of what you're getting is I'm going to give you a template. I'm going to install it. You're going to do all this stuff. You're going to have it for like a couple weeks. And then I'm going to come back in a week and we'll go over any sort of issues you may have. And I will fix them as part of the whole price. Because I knew that was just going to be part of the process, right? Of course, I built that into my price because I knew that was going to be coming back. But I think the thing that I learned is that people just want to know like what they're going to get and what they're going to pay. Yeah. Yes. You know, I mean, honestly, when uh, even in our job, you know, we don't get paid per week. Right. We don't get paid per hour or whatever. I mean, some of these other jobs, right? If you're a music editor, you get paid per week. Totally. If you're an editor, you get paid per week, right? We don't get that. You get mm -mm. a flat fee. Yes. I'm going to get music. I'm going to give you money. And this is how much money I'm going to give you. And then you're going to give me back music. So that's how our world works. So I had to approach that as well with how I did stuff. I did stuff under flat fee. So it's like, it's not going to be per hour. This is what the template's valued to me. What's it valued to you? We negotiate on that. Okay, boom, there it is. You're going to have that. So, you know, there were a lot of things that I realized just by studying how we operate, how the business works, you know, human nature. I think that allowed me to set up the business in a way that made sense for what we do. Yeah, it makes sense. And it's come such a long way. And I love hearing this whole arc. So I'm going to I'm going to take you back to the beginning and then bring you back to the present, because we have one question that I ask everybody on this podcast, which is when you first started. And that could be any starting point. It could be when you first started organ lessons. It could be when you went to <laughs> Yale, it could be anywhere, any starting point. How did you define success? You already kind of hinted on this earlier. And how has that changed over time? And how do you define success now? Oh, that's a good question. I don't think I did say that. Did I say that already? Boy, I got to think about what I said, how, to, <laughs> how I answered that question before. You got me thinking. So <laughs> success-wise, I'm going to borrow from a friend of mine who told me success for him was when people that you admire say, well done because we spend so much time in our lives trying to get to our work to the point where, you know, it's at that level of those other people that we admire. And when they like listen to something that you do, or they 
consuming that you do and they say, well done, that feels successful to mm-hmm. me. Speaking of which, you know, remember Bruce Broughton? He, you know, told me I had needed some help in my musical grammar, right? I had lunch with him a couple of weeks ago and he said he listened to my score for My Name is Pauli Murray. And he looked at me and said, well done. <laughs> you did, <laughs> he said, awesome. you did things that, you know, you couldn't do a few years ago. And, you know, the way you did this or the way you did that. And he was very specific, you know, so I knew he wasn't just, you know, BSing me because he was very specific about like the music and the cues and how it was working and all this stuff. He's like, well done. And I was like, you know what? I feel good about that because here's a hero of mine telling me well done. And that's what I think I define success, really, is that I'm able to produce something. Look, my name is Paulie Murray. I'm sure like, you know, none of your listeners have probably even heard of that documentary and none of them probably even watched it or whatever. I don't define success that way because I have no control over what people watch, when they watch it, if they like it. I can't. So not going to do that. I also can't control what opportunities come my way. I can't. I can go out and try and get stuff, but every time I go out and try and get something, it kind of fails. And then things that come to me, they're usually things that I would never anticipate. So, you know, I can't control that either. So I can't bank success on, you know, getting these gigs. I don't know. All I can do is that I do something at a level that my heroes listen to and say, you know what? Good job. What a perfect way to start wrapping this up. So as a last question, where can people find you to listen to your music, social media, anything, anything you want to plug? Absolutely. Well, I'm on Spotify. So apparently my wrapped uh, Spotify told me I need to actually <laughs> tell people I'm on Spotify. Because <laughs> <laughs> my numbers are like, oh, people are like, oh, you're on Spotify? It's like, yeah, I am. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So yes, I'm on Spotify. You can find me there. Uh, I've got a few albums out there from a, a few projects that are there. Uh, my Instagram is my first name, Jean-Yves. I'm the only Jean-Yves Bonton in the entire world. So <laughs> you search me up you will find me and only me. You can find me on Instagram that way. And that's usually what I promote myself on that stuff. And you get all the updates usually through there. And my website is not that great. So let's just focus on Instagram <laughs> and Spotify. Okay. Beautiful. <laughs> you can get that, find me. And, you know, I love to say is I do have a couple of big announcements, I believe in 2022. Mm-hmm. So, you know, keep your ears peeled. All I have to say is God is amazing. The vision of my life that he whispered in my ear 15 years ago, I'm blown away. Blown away. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. It means a lot. And your answers were so good. (laughs) So thought out. I loved it. Because I'm old. I got something to say, man. (laughs) I've had some life. I've had some life. I got stuff to say. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash soundbizpod. Soundbiz pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects that'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. 
And if you're looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to, this podcast is actually a part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. So if you want to check those out, hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.